Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Pupul Bishit. Pupul is a multidisciplinary designer and futurist and is the winner of the Joseph Jaworski Next Generation Foresight Practitioner Award in 2018. Her practice is rooted in human-centred insights and lies at the intersection of futures thinking, design and participatory research. Pupul founded the Decolonising Futures Initiative in 2018, a global project that aims to engage marginalised communities in imagining their preferred futures. Through this initiative, she is pioneering the use of her novel foresight method, inspired by the Kavad folk-telling tradition of Rajasthan, India, one of the first and only foresight methods directly derived from a non-Western tradition. With the belief that the stories we tell of our pasts shape our future, Pupil has dedicated her multidisciplinary creative practice to uncovering narratives of alternative histories and marginalised futures that otherwise lie in underexplored nooks of our everyday world. Through the use of storytelling as a tool, she hopes to move foresight outside organisational confines and engage in mass dialogue about our collective future as a civilization. Welcome to FuturePod, Pupil. Thank you, Peter. I'm so excited to be on the show. Uh, I have been an avid listener for a while now, so uh, I'm really glad that I could be a part Thank of Thank you this. very much. It's always lovely to speak to a listener. <laughs> I usually <laughs> just speak to a microphone. Um, Pupil, as a listener, you would understand the question one is probably my favourite question, which is for the guest to tell their story. So what is Mm -hmm. the Pupul Bisht story? Well, I think this is going to be my favorite question too, uh, because as you probably already know, I love stories. Um, And I feel like as I'm building my practice further, I keep uncovering all these, you know, different pieces of my own story from my past and and the life that I've lived so far that provides such a great explanation uh, to why I'm doing the work that I'm doing today. So the short answer to your question of how I landed in the futures field is that um, not so long ago, I completed my bachelor's in design from National Institute of Design in India. And at that time, I really wanted to build my skills further in transdisciplinary design and systems design. I was very interested in that kind of thing. So I decided to uh, come to Toronto to pursue my master's in strategic foresight and innovation at OCAD University. And to be very honest with you, until the time that I actually joined the program, I did not know anything about this line of work and that there are people who are national futurists. So my entry into futures is definitely through the field of design. That's my background and is is in pure design. But I think the the longer sort of Pupul's story is that it's made up of all these different stories that have somehow found their way into my current practice, which I think is very multidisciplinary at its core. And, you know, my specific futures practice, and you, and you said uh, a bit of this in, in the wonderful introduction that you gave me, is the work that I'm doing with the Decolonizing Futures Initiative. And I, when I think about this work, I think in retrospect, it seems to be a direct result of my years growing up in New Delhi and the kind of work that I was doing in my early years in design school. So growing up in a city like Delhi was such a beautiful experience because it's a very, very diverse city and it has a rich cultural heritage. And so I think that because of that reason, it's a city, and I think this can be said about India at large, it's a place that very organically almost holds uh, multiple time periods together 
that just seem to coexist you know so there are no hard <laughs> edges i feel <laughs> and um, and so i think that at a very early age i learned how to see beauty in and be appreciative of uh, plurality of being plurality of expression and um, then i when i went on to study design at nid during my undergrad days it was again a very fascinating experience because a lot of our pedagogy drew from the bauhaus school of design but was actually being taught to us through an extremely indian perspective and uh, we were very rooted in the local context so i think as a young aspiring design student i struggled a bit to wrap my head around why i an indian designer studying and then practicing in india was being taught bauhaus principles i mean honestly it didn't make much sense right so i actually wrote a colloquium paper in my second year and it was titled finding yeah. indian design because i was so curious about whether there was a local indigenous indian expression design expression or ethos outside the influence of the bauhaus school of thought because nid was what brought formal design education to the country and if there was such an expression then where could i find it <laughs> right so i feel like i was on a mission and so i feel around that time that was a yeah. very defining moment for me where i started asking these questions around identity politics of design and found myself talking about the false universality that's often accorded to frameworks and methods in modern disciplines yep. of practice and i think half a decade later here i am and you know and i really think that that is what led me to found the the decolonizing yep. futures initiative that's very interesting because yeah. i you haven't heard it yet but i did an interview with zia sada and i'm hoping mm-hmm. that'll be up very soon and one of zia's very very strong points is that futures itself cannot be colonized and it has to be guarded such that we do not allow it to be colonized the right. same way that, that you know that's for him probably the single thing that futures has to be about but also has to be vigilant for which is to actually prevent the notion that knowledge is universal that methods you know work across everything he said everything is context specific right and i have to take this moment to say that i was very fortunate to uh, have the opportunity to speak to zia uh, when i was doing my master's thesis and so i think his work and his writing and his thought has been very formative in in shaping uh, my practice yeah. as it stands yeah. today so yeah one of my pet questions is the people who really inspired you and supported you as you made what i would describe as a transformation from yourself from basically coming from a you know somewhat colonized space around designed to finding this notion of how does one decolonize myself my discipline and my future so i think like you said and as i was mentioning in the previous question is that as a designer and futures practitioner from a previously colonized geography and living mm. in a globalized world i think i carry with me at all times a sort of a hybrid identity because the conceptual foundations of design and futures practice that i think i've internalized or have had to internalize as a consequence of my formal education because i've i've been formally trained in design and formally trained in foresight but i think a lot of those conceptual foundations often times conflict with or i would be as extreme to say sometimes they even silence the part of my world view that was shaped by my socio cultural upbringing in india and i think therefore so much of my work is an exploration of possible ways of making room for those marginalized world views and cultural identities within myself and what i see around me so in terms of people who supported me or inspired me we already spoke about zia but i think it's been so important for me to have advisors and mentors along my journey who allowed me to yeah. ask these questions because they are fundamentally political questions and they are fundamentally questions that disrupt and challenge and therefore make uncomfortable and problematize a lot of things that 
we all do or that we've all studied and dedicated you know our life's work to so i think that has been such a big blessing and if i didn't find mentors along the way who allowed me that space i wouldn't have done any of this work so definitely uh, during my time at nid i used to have a professor called tarundeep girthar and you know when you go to design school you always think that the skill that you need is to be able to visualize beautifully or be very very creative as a thinker but he taught me something really fundamental is that to be a good designer you need to learn yeah. how to observe observation is the core skill and i think today when as a futurist <laughs> it's probably one of the main skills i have in my in yeah. my toolkit and then during my time at ocad uh, both my professors professor peter jones who's a systems designer and dr dory tunstall who is the dean of design at ocad and has a whole life's uh, work dedicated to decolonizing design but definitely very fundamental and in the past one year because i got the ngfp award last year i had the privilege of meeting some leading minds in the field and my mentor Kat Tully uh, who is the founding director of School of International Futures in UK again really such a visionary so as a young woman it's very important for me to be able to have women role models in the field and i am very lucky to say and very proud to say that we have so many incredible women doing incredible work yeah i concur completely on that I'm going to actually pose a question for you, which is my PhD work and also just my observation of what was happening in the classroom when I taught foresight at the postgrad level for 15 years was that, A, I had a predominance of women in the classroom. So point one, the foresight classes were different to almost every other university, certainly every other subject in the business school that I was in, that when you walked into the classroom, that women were in the majority and the observation that i kind of speculated on was that the whole constructed nature of the future and in fact the whole constructed nature of the present is a social construction that men aren't always aware of because they basically can stay within the one gender structure power structure for almost their entire lives whereas women mm-hmm. generally if they were uh, moving through a series of roles had their reality and their gender and their world constructed for them and so futures as a notion being open and constructible was was kind of dirt for women but for men was something of a an eye opener what do you think about that wow that's very very fascinating and i've definitely not thought about it but i i would say that makes a lot of sense i've also in the recent years definitely been exposed to feminist futures and queer futures and so what you're saying i think i i have seen that in some incredible work so i think people who come from some sort of a marginalized position in the society i think futures is very important becomes very very important right because i think a basic then of of futures thinking is around transformation and transition so i think i agree with what you're saying or your speculation yeah question 2 is the one where i encourage the guest to talk you know at a technical or a practitioner level about a favored framework mm-hmm. or method that is central to their practice but also can educate the listener about the particular use of the tool how they might deploy it or practice it so what would you like to talk about so like i said i am formally trained in the conventional methodology and i continue to use a lot of that in client work that i do so and i do have a lot of favorites and there are some great methods but i think i have to talk about you know the method that the past two years of my life have been primarily dedicated to as part of my decolonizing futures initiative which is this foresight method that i designed and developed 
during my master's thesis at OCAD. And this method draws inspiration from Kavar, which is a folk storytelling tradition practiced by a small community of nomadic storytellers in rural Rajasthan, which is a desert state in northwestern India. And I designed this method really with the hope to enable participatory, radical and and transformative futures thinking amongst local community groups. So now I I think it's important for me to talk a bit about the backstory of of Kavard, which is the point of inspiration for for the method. It's actually very fascinating. And, And again, this is it's legend. So legend has it that <laughs> so this storytelling tradition is probably about 400, 500 years old. And um, legend has it that it perhaps came about as an innovation that was necessitated by caste-based social segregation in Rajasthan. So these nomadic storytellers were called Kavadiyas. They traveled from village to village with a wooden painted story box, which acts as almost as a portable shrine. And it, it has pictures from different myths and legends drawn on its panels. And all these panels open in different directions. So kavar actually, the word uh, comes from a Hindi word, kivar, which means doors. And because the box looks like a series of doors, that's where, that's where the name comes from. So they would take these wooden boxes or portable shrines in order to compensate for the inability of their patrons to perform religious pilgrimage. And this is because uh, the patron communities of this tradition belonged to marginalized castes. And perhaps in those times, they were not allowed access to Mm -hmm. places of worship. I found Kavar, and I had obviously... uh, my mother's actually from Rajasthan, so I had seen Kavar performances before, but I didn't know much about the history of the tradition and, and the technique itself. And so when I was doing my master's research, I was sort of reintroduced to Kavar at a, at a much more meaningful depth through the work of uh, Nina Sabnani, who is an Indian animator and storyteller who's in fact been researching this art form for over two decades now, maybe more than that. And when she was studying the cover storytelling, she found that because as a tradition, it compensates for the patron's ability, inability to perform pilgrimage, in its performance structure, it actually imitates 10 steps of Hindu pilgrimage. So when I was designing the new method, when I read this, you know, something clicked and I said, I felt like in a lot of ways, I was what I was trying to do, which is to open up futures discourse to people who've been typically left out of the conversation Mm -hmm. was very similar to this history of the cover. So um, the new methodological framework that I designed was by reimagining the 10 steps of pilgrimage as the 10 steps of time travel, facilitating a collective journey of the participants from their present state to a desirable vision of the future. Nice. So rather than the person do the pilgrimage to the shrine, the shrine comes to the people. And in your case, for people who haven't, the design of your future hasn't been available. You're bringing bringing the future to, to those people. Exactly. I think when I was designing this, two questions were very important for me as a researcher, because what I was trying to do was the the, the core question I was asking myself is what if there was a different way of of practicing Mm. foresight? What would that new approach look like? Because I think this was all happening. This all started in 2016, perhaps. So there was all this talk around leaving no one behind, right? Whenever we talked about the future and 2030 was really such an important horizon and still is actually. And I realized that talking about leaving no one behind is important, but it was never going to be enough if we do not acknowledge that futures for all cannot be imagined Mm -hmm. by a few. Because just a few of us and we cannot, um, we don't understand the diversity of context that exists in the world. 
And I said, okay, so then, you know, this has to be made more participatory. And how do you do that? And another thing that was very important that, that was coming back to me as a question again and again is that what if the initial input of a foresight project was not just a deck of trends, <laughs> but the lived yeah. and uh, embodied experience of people who are themselves going to be stakeholders or ancestors of these futures yeah. that are being imagined? So making it more human and making it more intimate was very important to me. And then, of course, being a designer, I know that sometimes when you want to change the output, you have to change the process, right? And I think storytelling really does serve as a very good tool for traveling to another time and space. And pilgrimage is important to me because I think there is something spiritual about thinking Mm -hmm. about the future. And pilgrimage is also beautiful because it's it's often a collective journey. And I think that is the reality of the futures that we are collectively heading towards different futures. And how do we bring that sense of collective into this work? And in Hindu uh, worldview, when not the end, but the penultimate step of a pilgrimage is when you see the God and all our gods have Mm. really big eyes. So you see them and they see you as, as you are, right? And that act is called darshan. In Sanskrit, darshan literally translates to seeing, but actually it's also a word, word for worldview. So it's sight with insight. So I think there's something really beautiful about when people witness the darshan of, of a preferred image of the future, there's insight in, in that site and how do we how do we return back to our present state and where we began the journey from but with that insight of mm-hmm. where we want to go so i think it becomes a, a circular journey if practitioners were interested in learning more about this approach and you know i'm assuming mm-hmm. that it's not so idiosyncratic that another person who doesn't come from the background or doesn't actually necessarily understand the culture could not employ parts of it. How would Mm -hmm. interested practitioners deepen their knowledge and find out more about the approach? So definitely, actually my entire research paper (laughs) is online. And something really great about OCAD is that we have an open research repository and that's a policy that the university follows. So all the master's research documents are up online. So if you search my name and decolonizing futures. Well, if that can be on um, your page, we'll have that that on your page. Yes, absolutely. We can add a link to that. I am always happy to talk to people about this because like all design work, in my eyes, this is Mm -hmm. a work in progress. And and like you said, it is very context specific. And that is the kind of practice that um, I am advocating for that, you know, methods should not be taken and applied Mm. without knowledge and, and respect for context. But at the same time, like you said, there are bits and pieces and there's always scope for new things to emerge. But I have to say that at the core of this method are seven guiding principles, which I think make the foundation of how this method interprets Mm -hmm. inclusive storytelling, especially in the context of futures thinking. And I think those methods are really are so open for interpretation and adaptation. So I would say that's where the magic really is at and not really, not necessarily only in the formal method as it exists or as I designed it to be, but really on what's the core of what we're trying to achieve and what does this alternative futures practice actually Mm. look like? So Um, what are those seven, what are those seven principles just quickly? (laughs) I walked right into that one, didn't I? Uh, (laughs) So the first one is really researcher as a listener. I think something that was important to me was how can I reverse the role um, that is inherent between the researched and the researcher in any project. And practitioners actually encouraged to to assume the role of a listener and the, the power of story creation and storytelling both lie directly in the hands of Uh, of the community that's participating. 
So you, I don't enter as a researcher. I don't, I'm not entering the room as an expert of the area that we're exploring. Uh, my job there is to actively listen to the stories that are being told. And then uh, the second one is totality versus destruction is that when I was studying non-Western forms of storytelling, something really beautiful is that the sense of, uh, the style of sense making tends to be very relational. So they don't necessarily break a story into smaller constituent elements to understand what is being said. The story that is being told actually exists in the relation between the different elements of the story. The third one is the comfort mm-hmm. with diversity. And, and the tool is very versatile in that it, it can hold multiple stories that can be generated from the same version of the tool. So each narrative actually ends up reflecting and celebrating the subjective voice mm-hmm. of the storyteller. The fourth one is particularity versus universality. This was something that um, one of the experts that I was interviewing for my master's thesis, she told me, she said that, you know, oftentimes when we want to build stories or tell stories that a lot of people can relate to, we obsess over the fact that in order to make it universal, we have to remove anything Mm. that's particular Mm. and specific from the story. And actually, those are not the kind of stories that are Mm. impactful because the more humanity and more particularity there is in stories, the more people are actually likely to identify with it, even if it's not their story. Because that humanity itself becomes the common thread that that binds people together and becomes a tool for empathy generation. The fifth one is constructive storytelling, which is borrowed from the work of Jessica Sinehi, who's a peace educator. She talks about destructive narratives versus constructive narratives. And I think we, when it comes to futures, we definitely have a bias (laughs) towards destructive narratives. So, um, you know, how do we how can we create more spaces where constructive narratives can emerge? And the the sixth one is power of orality. Of course, I'm designing a non-Western method. So given that most of these cultures are oral cultures, oral and visual storytelling is the primary mode of expression in the method and actually does not rely at all on the written word. And the last one is I call it not without my history. Because a lot of research that I was doing with these uh, communities was that we have to explicitly address alternative and marginalized uh, histories, both at an individual level and also collective level, if we're really interested in change making when we yeah. talk about the future. Yeah, that's true. History is, uh, yeah. history is not determinant, but if we don't understand it, we're blind to you know, the deeper forces and deeper stories that are being told. Exactly. Question three. <laughs> uh, the hard one for mm-hmm. my uh, guests is where I talk to people as just a citizen of the world, a human being in the world, about how you mm-hmm. yourself are making sense of the emerging worlds around you, of both what you are making sense of and also how you make sense of the emerging futures? Oh, that's a (laughs) solid question. (laughs) Definitely not an easy question. Um, Okay, I think I'll begin at the place where we're already at, right? I've abundantly made it clear that I am very interested in stories and storytelling. So... I think I'm always very keenly paying attention to a lot of these stories. And and I I feel like when people ask me what kind of futurist I am, I always like to say that I'm an oral futurist (laughs) because, um, you know, I'm inspired by there's some great work that oral historians are actually doing on my subcontinent in South Asia. And so I always feel like there's so much to learn from that work and, and how can we bring those sensibilities into futures work. So, you know, uh, looking beyond uh, reports and, and what the experts are saying, but really paying attention to what are the stories that are making their way to my family's dinner mm-hmm. table, for example, or on my smartphone. And why I say my smartphone is because I think over the years, 
technology has really democratized storytelling in itself everybody yeah. is a storyteller everybody can tell a story today so i am very interested in who the storytellers are going to be in the future and what are the stories going to be about, about in the future so definitely that is something that i think about a lot another thing uh, that has been playing on my mind is the way we understand humanity or what it means to be human in itself is changing and this is probably playing on my mind because i've been working uh, with the school of international futures on a project exploring future of human rights and i can't really talk uh, further about the project but you know one of the things that has come up in the research is that our fundamental concepts of what it means to be human in this world is both in a state of flux but also under tremendous mm. threat again mainly from technology and uh, just the other day i was reading this article about how there's this whole generation that is growing up where it's absolutely normal for them to be in a world where technology is pervasive it's all around them so they don't even see privacy as a fundamental mm. right anymore and i perhaps belong to a generation that was the last one to grow up with quite a bit of analog before digital and virtual took over so i am very curious to see what kind of futures this leads us to i'm actually very nervous to see it but i try try to avoid <laughs> the term nervous <laughs> i'll always be very interested or curious or keen to see um and then then with artificial intelligence obviously matters only get complicated but the other side of the same aspect is that there is also a positive way i feel in which you know these definitions of what it means to be human are changing and expanding because i think people are finally challenging the dominant anthropocentric world view and we are beginning to take a more ecological mm. and relational world view and it's definitely it's always been present and important in indigenous cultures that this planet does not solely belong to us and we need to live in better harmony with other life but i feel it's still at a very nascent stage we're only now beginning at a mass like mainstream narratives only beginning to slowly pay attention to this so i'd be very interested in seeing um how that changes how we do things and how we function in the world um yeah i think the yeah. you know if i take your way of explaining it that what's happened through that the powerful storytellers that were around in my generation have become less powerful because others now can tell alternative stories the old controllers of knowledge and the controllers of stories don't like it so you're talking everything there from you know the contemporary media um the news the political you know they don't like the fact that people tell stories that don't match to their truth but mm-hmm. then if you start that process i don't know that it can be stopped in other words if you extend the storytelling to to marginal identities let them be gendered let them be other forms of uh, sentient life then you're not going to stop it at people you know giving rights to their to their rumba of you know vacuum cleaner and smartphone and siri and all that kind of stuff in other words yeah you know, people are going to say well these objects are just like people that were regarded as objects absolutely and and objects in the future are actually not we're not going to be able to to tell a lot yeah. of them apart right so the when the boundaries blur i think these questions are only going to become more mainstream and it would be fascinating to see how we uh, resolve One of the them. things that other guests have talked about and i'm just going to ask you about it because i'm fascinated to know how you frame it is the seeming emergence of i hate the phrase but i'm going to use it young people um we've seen for example uh-huh. the gun lobby in america while it while you know the conflict is still happening it it appeared that the florida children were they galvanized a story that caught national attention where children themselves rather than wait for adults they said we're going to do it ourselves and in a similar way uh, the greta thunberg and with the so-called younger peoples suddenly having a becoming more political and actually telling a deliberately political story 
How do you mm-hmm. how do you sense make that? So you know, I was in Oslo last month for the anticipation conference, and uh, Suhail and I, Tulla in his keynote, actually spoke about this exact thing, uh, and I loved how he put it. He said that when it comes to these big challenges that are facing humanity today, and and there are plenty big challenges, wicked problems that are facing humanity today, he said we already have great data. What we don't have is good stories. And the reason why Greta Thunberg is captures the imagination in the way that she does or is able to mobilize in the way that she does is because she gave the world a good story. But at the same time, uh, I'm obviously not as young as them, but <laughs> being a, a young practitioner or just a young citizen of the world, I am definitely... I think it's a positive shift and and I say this you know coming from a culture that does have great reverence for the elderly and they part of older people with more experience with more knowledge have traditionally been a very very important part uh, of our society especially in my culture I don't want to I don't want to make it an umbrella statement but i think that there had to be a time when when that unquestioned authority had to be challenged right and i think that that's just the way the world works for me everything boils down yeah. to change making and i think if we want a different kind of story we cannot expect the same storytellers to mm. tell a different kind of story so the new stories are going to come mm. from new storytellers so until we change the way we tell stories and until we change who tells the story it's probably just going to be a different version of the same story so i think it's great that for once the platform and the voice is reaching parts of the of of the world uh, that haven't had that kind of uh, say in the mainstream and they're saying important things and they're bringing attention to important things so uh yeah Thanks, i'm all for it question four around communication of how we explain ourselves and again it's another story i suppose so how do you explain what you do to someone who doesn't necessarily understand what it is you do <laughs> <laughs> i feel like the past one year of my life has led me to this moment <laughs> and this question <laughs> because for a while now i have been consistently uh, presenting my work to a new very different audience almost every other week so actually let me bring out my binder <laughs> of 100 um context context specific uh ways of explaining what i do um you know i think it is always a challenge a lot of it is on the spot yeah. improvisation i have to admit it and i think for me even sometimes when i'm in a room full of futurists it becomes a challenge to explain my particular yeah. project and and practice because you know I, it's different from the the conventional and yeah but i think from this exercise of over and over and over explaining things to people and i think it becomes super challenging to explain it in different languages <laughs> you know and i had to do a lot of that in india over the summer and that's when you start to realize that language in itself can sometimes become such a barrier yeah to communication it's a tool for communication but it's actually actually a barrier to communication as well i think uh, what has helped me is identifying some kind of a common thread between the work that i do yeah. and my audience i think i'm lucky because storytelling is such an important it's the core of my work and everybody understands yeah. story and storytelling so when i lead with that it helps a lot when i am in design spaces right with designers then speculative is a term that they understand the most 
So I try to lead with that, you know, but then when I'm saying a context like the European Parliament talking to a room full, full of bureaucrats, then you have to make it relevant to say something like strategy and decision making and policy. So I think what I'm trying to say is that uh, in my experience, I think when people ask what you do, they actually are more concerned about mm. the so what, you know, so why mm. do you do what you do and not really just what you do. And as long as you're able to land whatever your answer is and mm. make it relevant to whatever it is that concerns them, I think that is a very strict, successful strategy or at least has been successful for me. But with my initiative, I have really now over the, you know, when I began, I would talk about decolonizing futures initiative. It's about pluralizing um, the, the foresight practice. It's about onto epistemic plurality, you know, and I'd, I'd use all these words, but I think over time I have <laughs> shed uh, yeah. all of the yeah. jargon. And now I just simply say that I am trying to challenge the notion of um, one size fits yeah. all futures and basically inspire communities and people to collectively build images of their preferred futures so that you know, they can begin to see themselves as active shapers of their futures rather than passive recipients or spectators to someone yeah. else's grand vision. And at least when, uh, you know, I'm doing this work with the communities that I work with in the geographies that I work in, this way of talking about my work definitely makes a lot of sense to people because they understand what that means and they understand why agency is important in, in talking about the future. So question five, Paul, is the, um, is the open question. What do you want to tell us about? I thought it would be interesting to talk about um, the Decolonizing Futures initiative. Because like I said, the past two years of my life were fully, completely dedicated to this project. And, and I really had the privilege of working with communities, working in contexts where there is an, an almost urgent need to decolonize futures or the future. And I think when I initially started this project and I at that time I was in Canada and because of geographical and economical reasons and because I was you know in school in Canada I couldn't go back home and complete my research at that time so when yeah. it come, come, came to testing the method I had to work with local communities in Canada and because like I said I am Perhaps one thing that I'm encouraging through my work is that context is important and methods are not neutral. So the toolkit that a practitioner yeah. brings inside the room must be paid attention to. Uh, and we cannot assume that everyone can and should participate in a certain process. So I, I had all this nervousness around uh, bringing a very a method that was inspired by an Indian tradition into a room of um, Canadians uh, or into, and a lot of my participants yep. were actually from indigenous communities in Northern Ontario. But I think something amazing that I realized in the first session itself and every single time I have run the method since then, was that I realized that there is so much that these cultures have in common. So there was, you know, when I shared the story of Kavar or even the way that the method is designed and the way that the session goes hmm. actually felt very normal and organic and in turn respectful to a lot of these people, you know, yeah who were used to participating in processes that often felt very ignorant and disrespectful. And so I think that, like I said before, in order to change the story about the future, we need to ask what if from a new perspective, we can't, we cannot, we need to change who the storyteller is. 
And I think now more, perhaps more than ever before, our world really needs us today because the amount of issues that we're facing mm. on this planet really need us to change our ways <laughs> in, in many ways. And a mm. lot of these communities and cultures have answers or at least alternative models for thinking about a lot of those things. That's been one of my greatest insights from this work that I've done. So I think that, I mean, what I am excited about when I look towards the future is how can I continue on this journey and take this method that has shown good promise so far and work with these communities that are not, I mean, you know, when I do this work, a lot of my participants often come back and tell me that they've never been asked this question of what does a preferred future look like to them? And they don't, they never thought that it was important what they thought about the future. And that has to change. You know, if we want to do meaningful work, that has to change. Uh, so we can talk about inclusion all we want and we can talk about not leaving anybody behind, but we need to start walking the talk. And um, yeah, I am just very excited about about taking this work to new places and new contexts, and 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 letting those story emerge, stories emerge, because that that's where the magic is at. And something that I that is coming up two things that are coming up which are probably uh, I, I should talk about them because you know there might be people uh, listening to our conversation who might want to you know participate and and join hands and I'm, I'm always so interested in collaboration is that I'm actually going to be doing a virtual residency for uh, storytellers artists and and creatives from from different mm. disciplinary backgrounds who come from uh, non-Western cultures. And it would basically be the cover method that will be workshopped virtually over a span of seven weeks. So every week we're going to look at one step of the process uh, and do it collectively. And, and the reason why it's remote is because I think a lot of times... Mm. Uh, you know, traveling to a certain type of the world, like that creates exclusion in itself. And a lot of people can't be part of it. But at the end of those seven weeks, then, you know, there will be time uh, for these people to actually spend time on perfecting their stories and working further on it through mentorship, through guidance, through, through other experts in those respective fields. So whether it's music or theater or visual arts, and then I haven't really landed on uh, what the final format of sharing that work would be. But it, 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 the aim is, the hope is really to start making spaces where these stories can actually, you know, see the light of the day and be produced in shareable formats. Because I think the mass imagination, you know, you type futures yeah. on Google and it's a page, it's a monochromatic blue sci-fi mood board <laughs> with no people in sight. I think that, that is the image that we need to challenge. And that's what we need to, to disrupt. Um, so that's the idea behind, that's the iteration two of the Decolonizing Futures Initiative. And the other thing I would say is it's actually yep. an Instagram campaign. It's called Recovered in Translation. We can probably add a link to it on my page. It's sort of a sub-project of the initiative. One of the things, like I said in the beginning, I call myself an oral futurist. And I think something that I've learned in, in working with a lot of these communities is that as a formally trained foresight practitioner, I often, my tendency is to enter a room with the assumption that there is one kind of futures thinking in that it's forward looking or uh, it's an explicit exploration about the future. But what I learned uh, working with these communities is that a lot of times, even though the thinking is very futuristic, it may not necessarily mm. talk about the future explicitly. And a lot of times these ideas tend to be very implicit. 
So languages play such an important role in shaping that. So I've I've been curating a campaign called Recovered in Translation, mm. which basically challenges uh, the dominance of English as a language on the global imagination of what it means to be futuristic and what does future mean. So, uh, uh, you know, we are exploring mm. what, uh, what are the words for future in languages other than English and what are the kind of meanings and approaches and attitudes towards what is the future? Why should we think about it? How can Lovely. one think about it, it that we can recover <laughs> by, by engaging in, in those discoveries? Okay, so we'll have, a, we'll have, a, we'll have links on your page you. <laughs> for both those things if people want to follow up either with the, um, with the virtual uh, project or the, uh, or the second one. I'm going to wrap mm-hmm. this now. So, look, it's been an absolute. I've been delighted mm-hmm. to, um, to, to to have a chance to to meet you and and hear your story. And um, it's been fantastic. And uh, I I wish you well uh, on the futures that you're uh, trying to create. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure for me. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.